0: Hello, and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and the New York Times. And I'm here today with our very special guest, someone who I am very proud to call my friend, Saul Leslie. Saul and I met last year at the David Foster Wallace Conference in Austin, represent. He is a PhD candidate at the University of Liverpool, studying portrayals of disability in 20th century literature. He's worked in higher education as a disability supervisor and a disability rights campaigner. He also works with Penguin Random House to assist disabled novelists with their writing. And his fiction has been published by Bloomsbury and Liverpool University Press. And his remarks on disability and literature have appeared in publications like the Times Literary Supplement. Saul, welcome to the show. How are
1: you? I'm great. Thanks, Peyton. It's lovely to be here and see you again.
0: Well, yes, virtually see you across the sea. If you couldn't tell by the accent, Saul is coming to us from Liverpool. And now, Saul, what is your relationship to Little Women?
1: Well, I think I probably have heard of Olcott and this novel before you suggested that we do this. But I hadn't ever read it and didn't really know an awful lot about her, I did take the opportunity ahead of this to ask a few colleagues, throw the net wide and see what they said about right. this, about their <laughs> relationship to this novel and to Alcott. Basically, it was a case of me saying, has anyone else read this novel? Is this something familiar to everybody? <laughs> and the split was interesting between those who definitely had grown up reading this novel, most of them being told by their mothers to read it, and a lot of yeah. the other ones, including me, who had... Been like impoverished literary waifs <laughs> <laughs> who came to it much later and didn't have this when we were growing up. So yeah, I read the I read it first time. I think it would have been so it would have been just less than a year ago, I guess. Wow. Okay. If it was after you and I had met in Austin,
0: right? Yeah, where I was ta- chatting about it with you.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so my my relationship to the novel is fairly recent, I would say, mm-hmm. and. You meant, actually, you having mentioned that I'm coming from Liverpool, Mm -hmm. I don't, to those who are familiar with the accent, they'll recognise that I don't have a Scouse accent, though Liverpool is like my adopted Mm -hmm. home now. I've lived here for many years. And so actually, because when the first time I read the novel, I did make a note of something in one of the earlier chapters. And so Mm -hmm. Alcott has sort of made a bit of work for herself in convincing me that this is a novel I should like because... In one of her earlier chapters, I don't know, if maybe you've already come across this in one of your previous sessions, but yeah, she actually, one of her characters already talks about Liverpool. <laughs> Do you remember now?
0: <laughs> oh, no. I, I was thinking the snotty British characters, but I don't remember the specific Liverpool reference. Oh, yeah. oh no, so, so it's when Amy
1: <laughs> is recounting yes. via epistolary, via letter to her <laughs> family, her travels and tribulations across Europe, and she says that she arrived at Liverpool and it's and this is the way she describes it. She says, it's a dirty, noisy place, and I was glad to leave it. So, oh my God. so Alcott, I mean, I'm guessing, you know, she's I, I don't know if <laughs> Alcott ever visited Liverpool or came to the UK, yeah. but she's made a rod for him back there because she's gonna have to work really hard to convince yeah. me of, of anything other than this opinion of my <laughs> adopted city. <laughs> oh, no.
0: Well, I mean, I, apo- I want to apologize to all Liverpudlians. I think is the what you call yourselves she definitely did travel in england that may well have been her impression of liverpool and i, I really just can't apologize enough Sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> to be fair she she is in, in somewhat good company because mm-hmm. herman melville also came to liverpool and his oh. little he has a little novella called redburn <laughs> that is not wholly complimentary either so i don't know maybe she's borrowing from yeah. borrowing her remarks i don't know i don't know if no. i don't know if she visited or did she read melville yeah. you know
0: I, I don't know about her specific relationship to Melville. I do know that her next door neighbor, Nathaniel Hawthorne, was obviously very close with Melville and they moved in the same circles. But I don't know as far as her actual reading of Melville, if she read this book about Liverpool and was inspired by it to trash Liverpool. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a hate letter yeah. to, to the city on Merseyside. Funny enough yeah. Nathaniel Hawthorne was the American consulate in Liverpool. Mm. He lived in well, there we go. Yeah, he lived in Liverpool and <laughs> he and Herman Melville used to go and sit on the sand dunes at Southport just up the coast and oh. smoke cigars and talk about <laughs> talk about this. Mel, no, was it Hawthorne? Yeah. Hawthorne has this diary entry where he says, Herman came down to the dunes with me and he was looking so forlorn and sad. And he was just going on and on about this whale idea that he's got for a book. And I was just like, mate, just finish it already, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, I can relate <laughs> as someone who has been stuck on a fictional project. <laughs> I think so. um, Your relationship to Little Women is you've read it recently. She, you know, she really had strong words about your home city, your adopted home city. I don't know. So, does that affect? Are you able then to even choose a March sister to say you are, or are you so alienated by her distaste for
1: Liverpool? I think because the chapter that you gave (laughs) to me to read, and maybe this is different in other chapters. I can't remember. It's been so long since I read them, but mm-hmm. it feels like quite an insular small chapter, right? It's quite enclosed. Yeah. And so I don't really get a huge impression about what the other Marxist the, the other Marx sisters are like. However, mm-hmm. I reckon if I had to choose actually you know what? It probably wouldn't be a Marx sister at all. I'd be one of those little school children that's walking past Beth's window. Oh those <laughs> what are they? The the reluctant climbers on the ladder of learning. Yeah. I'd be one of them. <laughs>
0: You're one of those. I do always say, which March sister are you? And for the purposes of this show, Lori is a March sister. So you can claim Lori if you like. Okay, I'll take Lori. He's also on the table. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So we've gotten a bit of the way there. For anyone listening in, usually, I don't know, this is, we can be kind of irreverent, we can be funny and bouncy, but this is a really, this is the emotional valley of the book. So we might be a bit more subdued today. We'll see. But Saul, would you like to recap chapter 40, The Valley of the Shadow.
1: Yeah, I think your preface there about the somber tone of this chapter is probably quite an important thing to acknowledge. Though I would say that in trying to sum this chapter up, my wife did remind me that there is a very pithy (laughs) two-word summary of this chapter from a TV show. Oh, yeah. (laughs) She's a big fan of 90s American sitcoms and said that in Friends there is a (laughs) yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wondered if this might have come up before. So there is that summing up, but in the kind of more lengthy way, I suppose it is this chapter 40 recounts Beth's increasingly debilitated illness, debilitating illness of some sort of chronic illness that isn't specified in this particular chapter. I don't think. And the preparations that the family around her are making as she begins to wither away and eventually. The passing of Beth. Beth dies.
0: Yeah. It's the two-word summary, yes. (laughs) We often talk about Little Women being a real novel of contradictions. There are places where this book is incredibly progressive and espousing values about women's rights that were far ahead of its day. There are places where it's incredibly frank about queer and trans embodiment. There are also places where it's downright misogynistic. There are places where it can be racist. We talked in the last episode about some really just kind of overt anti-Semitism jumping out. Mm. And I think this is, especially with Beth and the way that Beth is written about, the way that Beth is portrayed in this book, she's another one of those kind of walking contradictions. Because I think there are ways that this chapter is looking ahead to the hospice movement Mm. and the notion of dying with dignity. And that seems really interesting and progressive to me and there are places where i think that the book is much more where this chapter especially is much more pitying of beth and of her disability and that's not alone in this chapter that sort of recurs throughout the book and we've talked about that but i think that's where we might want to jump in so what's your impression of this chapter kind of from your standpoint you, as a yeah scholar
1: yeah well i agree with you that i think there are different registers That Alcott moves through in this novel and I sense that in this particular chapter this is her exercising some sentimental muscles right it feels very sentimental mawkish almost and really trying to push at I don't know a, 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 a what it seemed to me was that there was a message about how that beth's death is going to be okay because god has chosen to take yes god has chosen to take <laughs> beth but what beth leaves behind are the virtues which joe and the rest of the family will take mm-hmm. up and yes. c- contained within just that as a conceit is a real contradiction between you as you said the, the progressive ideas of dying with dignity but then the notion that a disabled character is is sort of imbued with such such a a high level of it's so it's so virtuous almost saintly yeah they kind of float off into the atmosphere and leave behind for everyone else this sort of glow this afterglow which they then take with them and that has elements of the as you said the pity aspect of disability narratives and the sacrificial element of them yeah absolutely yeah so that's those are some of that's sort of the tone that i started to get when i was rereading the chapter And it basically, it felt in some ways a little bit like a tiny Tim. Type portrayal? Yeah. Has that come yeah. up before? Has that name come um, up?
0: Not Tiny Tim specifically. It's funny that you mentioned Tiny Tim. I'm reading this book called No Pity by actually my friend's dad, Joe Shapiro, right now, and his chapter kind of opens he's a disability journalist, and this is a history of the disability civil rights movement in America. And the the title of the first chapter is No More Tiny Tims. So <laughs> well,
1: there you go, that's
0: it. Obviously, that is a reference that looms large over kind of any discussion of disability in literature, but also Alcott love loved 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 dickens and i believe even got to see him in person at one point oh, really? so yeah that would have been i'm sure she would have had dickens portrayals of disabled people in the back of her mind as she was writing this but yeah. 100 well she
1: because yeah. in terms of where this chapter fits in a schema of how she develops the disability narrative. Because th- yeah. if my understanding of this novel is that it's not solely about disability, that this is one of myriad yeah. threads yeah. that she weaves, you know, in and out. Mm-hmm. And so Olcott is sort of, she's arranging the furniture of Beth's yes. demise earlier on in the novel, mm-hmm. right? So she's sort of mm-hmm. setting up the scenery that, for something that yes. will later occur. And so you get these references earlier on to, you know, Joe, is looking at, at Beth. She hasn't seen her for a while. I think this is in chapter mm-hmm. thirty-six. Yeah, she's, yeah, she says Joe hasn't seen hadn't seen Beth for a long time, and suddenly notices Beth's face mm-hmm. had changed, and there was a strange, transparent look about it, as if the mm-hmm. mortal was slowly being was being slowly refined away, and the immortal shining through the frail flesh with an indescribably pathetic beauty. Pathetic. Yeah, there's, that's the word, you know, <laughs> pathetic beauty is the sort of, yeah. I guess, is the sort of contradiction that disability in literature sits in, that it has to yeah. be, that it is ascribed those characteristics of pathos mm-hmm. and of sort of saint-like beauty.
0: Yeah, there's numerous references in this chapter that we're discussing here. Of Beth is an angel. She is saintly. She is a fairy godmother. She's magical. It, <laughs> in many ways, I feel like we're moving down a checklist of offensive disability <laughs> stereotypes. <laughs> but it's it's not just
1: that. Yeah, sorry. No, no, go on. I, but I think that's an interesting point. It, but it also mm-hmm. because I think in a way the fact that this is sentimental, it's framed in the sentimental mm-hmm. register, actually is a way to talk about it in a slightly different way which is to say that yeah. it isn't strict realism the fact that she is described at one point as a fairy yeah a, yeah these are the school kids mm-hmm. the school children the reluctant yeah. climbers up the ladder of learning and they describe <laughs> i guess this is me now you know describing beth as the gentle mm-hmm. giver and as a sort of fairy godmother this isn't strict realism this is how to put it that, I'm trying to formulate the the thought in real time, but it's <laughs> it's something to do with actually. I'll, I'll mull that one over. Yeah, what do you think?
0: So. I don't know how much you know about Alcott's biography.
1: I found a book that might come in handy. <laughs> okay. we'll, come, we'll come to that. We'll come to that.
0: Yeah. So we've talked about this a lot in the pod, but an extent to which Little Women is autobiographical, right? Mm. Alcott had three sisters. They grew up in New England. Joe is sort of an Alcott avatar for this child who's just can't get over her disappointment and not being a boy. And that stays with her. She longs to be a writer. So the character of Beth is based on the real life Elizabeth Alcott, who, like Beth, Died of a chronic illness. Uh. And Little Women was written in two parts. So, several years after Beth's death. And the first part of Little Women, which at the time it was a fully complete novel, she wasn't anticipating writing a sequel. Beth becomes ill, almost dies, and then recovers. And then she was commissioned to do this sequel. And she deals in this, in the second half of the book, much more frankly, with the facts of Beth's death, the atmosphere in the room. And I have with me, I don't know if you can see, I have the journals of Louisa May Alcott and just reading her descriptions of... Life in that room tending to her sister. This was in 1858. Mm. She writes, Lizzie much worse. Doctor says there is no hope a hard thing to hear. But if she is only to suffer, I pray she may go soon. She was glad to know that she was to quote unquote, get well as she called it. And we tried to bear it bravely for her sake. We gave up plays, father came home, and Anna took the housekeeping so that mother and I could devote ourselves to her. Sad, quiet days in her room and strange nights keeping up the fire and watching the dear little shadow try to while away the long, sleepless hours without troubling me. She sews, reads, sings softly, and lies looking at the fire. So sweet and patient and so worn, my heart is broken to see the change. I wrote some lines one night on our angel in the house. Dear little saint, I shall be better all my life for these sad hours with you. And in the margins later, she wrote Joe and Beth. Wow! So <laughs> we have some very direct kind of inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. There,
1: there are parts of that feel like <laughs> they've almost just been copied and pasted into this chapter. I'm right? sure. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. I mean, I'm that's, sure it was. Like, I'm yeah. thinking partly of the description there of the fire, mm-hmm. which if I remember in this chapter, there's a bit, it's sort of like Chekhov's gun, <laughs> but with a log in the fire, because Joe falls asleep yep. with the tongs by the fire, ready mm-hmm. to stoke it. And while she 's asleep, mm-hmm. Beth reads the lovely poem, yes. and then what mm-hmm. startles Joe into wakefulness is the log falling in the flames, yes. <laughs> and you know, comes, away. and also the description of saint of a saint yeah this is you know that's almost verbatim the way that Beth is described yep. as a household saint in its shrine, mm-hmm. and you know th- this is one of the things that I suppose is a big question in disability studies, which yeah. is what are the implications of the saint status for a disabled character. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Tiny Tim, as we said, is the quintessentially saintly character. And where, you know, Dickens is, he's portioning out more moral worth to that character Mm -hmm. because of a perceived physical lack, perceived physical deficiency. And this is very common in all sorts of ailments and impairments. And so Mm -hmm. other writers, you know, John Keats, Shelley, and Edgar Allan Poe, Mm -hmm. they all had consumption which I wondered at one point if that's what the condition was that mm. Beth had. And they all had consumption. And it was a, a disease that became associated with writers and poets, so much so that it was yeah. called the romantic disease. The idea apparently <laughs> being that if you had a gentle, fragile, physical constitution, this helped you somehow connect with <laughs> abstract, poetical ideas of the soul. Yeah. And this is, you know, th- this is a conceit of I would argue Western literature generally going all the way back to the ancients where Coma was supposedly called the blind poet. And the idea there was Mm -hmm. that a physical sight impairment somehow allowed the poet to see further into the heart of the human condition. And we've got to ask, what what does this do to the the disabled character? Well, it renders them, to use religiously framed language, it renders Mm -hmm. them holier than thou. Yeah. And also, this is sort of what I was trying to allude to a minute ago when we were talking about the fairy godmother type portrayal of Beth, is that it renders them almost two dimensional, slightly Mm -hmm. caricatured. But in a way, this is maybe why one of the reasons why Alcott has chosen this slightly sentimental register for this scene, this chapter, is that it allows (laughs) this slightly, this Strictly not realistic scene to unfold without it becoming wholly ridiculous because if it's couched in like sentimental tone terms already and has this (laughs) imbued with this sense of sainthood and martyrdom then it's already slightly unrealistic and therefore the charges can't be leveled at it that it is strict realism you know does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's interesting, even just looking between the two chapters to observe the differences between the sentimental gloss that she puts on the fiction and then in her journals, which she's still using some of the same language. And it's clear that she drew on these journal entries to write about Beth's death in the novel, but the pleasant stuff is really drawn out. She inserts a full page length poem that she finds the time to write instead of a few lines that Alcott writes in the diary. The time with Beth is really expanded and blown out and the entire family is there. There's a part kind of at the outset of the chapter where the first few months were very happy ones. And (laughs) Beth often used to look around and say, how beautiful is this? As they all sat together in her sunny room. (laughs) And there's none of that. (laughs) That's very different from the journals where everyone is trying to be brave for her sake. This almost, Alcott is able to imagine the ideal hospice room for Beth. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And then she's able to give Joe and Beth this long conversation that's essentially like, where are you at in your character development? Well, here's where I am. Where are you, Beth? They're able to sort of very explicitly spell things out. But I think even beneath all of that, I think the feelings are still very raw. We know that, again, from just Alcott's biography that in October of this year, so later this year, that... Louisa May Alcott considered suicide, and I think it was really the grief of losing Beth. And then later that year, her older sister, Anna, got married. So then at that point, Little Women and any kind of successful writing career was still several years off. And so Alcott was sort of left alone to look after the house and her aging parents, and that really proved to be. So this was a real, it triggered really extreme grief in her that spilled over into her own Exacerbating her own mental illness, really, mm. because we're we're talking about Beth as the disabled character for this chapter, but we've talked also about Joe throughout this book, maybe being neurodivergent or being on the autism spectrum, having difficulty socializing and connecting with other people, mm. and so it's interesting here to this may actually be a chapter about two disabled people.
1: That's interesting.
0: <laughs> if we may widen it,
1: yeah, that's really interesting. I am. Um, yeah. I, well, there's so much to unpack there. Sorry <laughs> you know, yeah amazing. I just talk to talks. You know what it's <laughs> yeah I hadn't really been considering Joe so much in that frame yeah. but you're right. Yeah. So yeah, I I suppose what that makes me consider. So if we're saying we're wondering if maybe Joe is neurodivergent that's interesting.
0: Yeah. Or that she may also be struggling with depression or suicidal ideation of her own. I think a lot of the language here around death being like virtuous and good. Mm. Something that I'm because I'm I'm working on this contemporary interpretation of little women myself.
1: I'm so excited to know how that's going, by the way. (laughs) Yes.
0: It's going well. I'm very I I will have some exciting news to share soon. But (laughs) I think one of the big questions that I had to grapple with was really what to do with Beth, because initially I wanted to portray her as chronically ill, but there were certain sentiments that Beth expresses and she's down on herself a lot. And especially in the earlier chapter, she's constantly calling herself stupid and little and bad. And some of those thoughts, and then her kind of worldview about death, I wasn't comfortable putting that in the mouth of a chronically ill character Mm. in 2023. (laughs) And thinking about it more reflecting on it, I think some of the things that we hear about death in this chapter are maybe things that would be warning signs in a suicidal person, right? thinking of death as the good way out, or moral in some way. Mm. And it's interesting to hold that along with what we know about alcohol, which is that shortly after Beth died, she did consider suicide. And I'm actually, again, I have the journals here because I knew I would need them. But she writes after her attempt, she writes, My fit of despair was soon over, for it seemed so cowardly to run away before the battle was over. I couldn't do it. (laughs) And you compare that to, like, all this language about... Beth being a brave soldier Mm -hmm. who's prepared to walk across the way, and she's the fittest of the pilgrims. It's, it's, I'm sorry, that is a lot to unpack (laughs) yourself. Well, but
1: but that's it, is that this is, but this gets to the crux of the issue Mm -hmm. because disability is a very complicated, intersectional,
0: it is, yeah,
1: rhizomatic and messy area of study. But one of the things that you mentioned there, I think that is really interesting is this examination of what the narrative function of <laughs> death in this novel and in this chapter yes. right because yes. obviously I'm sure I'm sure, you know you having mentioned that she is that she was the fittest and the first of the pilgrims to go <laughs> this of course I'm yeah. sure has come up before but Don Bunyan's novel Pilgrim's Progress and yep <laughs> that I was uh, when you sent me the email that had the chapter that you wanted me to look at and I saw mm-hmm. that this was almost the same name as the chapter in Pilgrim's Progress, bar yes. a couple of words, because what Alcott's done here is she's taken the chapter, The Valley of the Shadow of Death, from Pilgrim's Progress and elided the final yeah. two yeah. words. It, it, yeah. Almost as if death itself, it doesn't, that much focus on death facing, the, how can I put this? <laughs> George Orwell said that mm-hmm. what writing was about is the power to, to face unpleasant facts, right? And it seems yes, that in all cult yeah. schema, facing death and naming it is not consistent with the philosophy of optimism or cheerfulness that she might yeah. be putting forward. At least in this chapter, let's say. And so she yeah, elides yeah. the death part of that when she recall when she's kind of mm-hmm. referencing Pilgrim's progress. Yeah. And as far as the extent to which death is a moral Death is imbued with morality when it comes to a disabled character. Well, I think again, Pilgrim's Progress is a really interesting text to consider. I don't know if you've read it.
0: As a very young child, I went to a vacation Bible school where we saw skits of it performed, and I think that's about as far as my
1: engagement goes. Skits of Pilgrim's Progresses. Is- yes. <laughs> sounds like that sounds like a TikTok <laughs> phenomenon. <phonopener. laughs> Yeah, it was,
0: I mean, evangelical childhood in North America is a wild ride. You go, you drink a juice box, you watch a bunch of teenagers act out Pilgrim's Progress, and then you play roller hockey. It's very simple. Of course. (laughs) of course.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, but in a way, you you as a writer are in good company there in terms Mm -hmm. of having been exposed to to Pilgrim's Progress, because I'd only read this book, Mm -hmm. Little Women, just earlier this year. I know Mm -hmm. that Mark Twain and Melville and Beecher Stowe and Fenimore Cooper, they almost all refer outright in mm-hmm. their novels to Pilgrim's Progress. And I can see how that text would appeal to writers who are, who are trying to establish a national literature, right? Because it's a story yeah, about, yeah. But it's just, you know, it's, it's essentially about moving across a vast landscape, encountering moral dilemmas and vanquishing shadowy forces, right? Which in terms of the the conceit of the European settlers in, the new world is what better than to have a kind of manual on how to do it written by John Bunyan centuries earlier. But of (laughs) course, this is the thing is of course it's religiously charged. And so yes, with little women and the portrayal of disabled characters, whether that's just Beth or whether we include Joe as well, Mm -hmm. what that would mean is that we could think about the ancient or the religious model of disability, which basically considers disability to be, a gift or a punishment? Oh, sure. A gift or a punishment, yeah. depending on your attitude towards mm-hmm. the Almighty. You know, I don't know if mm-hmm. the, what the evangelical view on this particular issue is, but the religious model of disability considers considers mm-hmm. that it is either a gift or a punishment from God, and that the individual must endure, and through that endurance, they come closer to grace and to enlightenment yeah. and everything else. So, in a way, I, I don't mm-hmm. know. Just, do, do do we know what Olcott's religious upbringing was, if any?
0: Yeah, she was part of this group of New England transcendentalists whose beliefs about faith were a bit more, they they weren't quite mainstream Protestantism. There was a lot of reverence for nature. There was sort of a belief that the body was a vessel for the spirit, Uh which is why some of Alcott's comments about, for instance, feeling as though she is a man's soul put by some freak of nature into a woman's body, that's quite congruous with her transcendental upbringing, right? And I do find not at this point in her life not not when beth was dying not the real elizabeth not when she was writing little women but much later in her journals she always goes on that kind of white person late in life soul seeking she's like i'm very curious about buddhism i saw a great talk by a hindu the other day <laughs> and you know she really ardently defends atheists that she knows she talks about believing in reincarnation so it comes across very very mainstream christian here mm. probably to us today but Throughout her life, she did kind of stray from the mainstream doctrine of Christianity. And actually, in its time, the Christian Union banned Little Women from Sunday school libraries because they objected to its content. Like the spec- wow. <laughs> so it's I know it's wild to there's specifically the scene in the second chapter where they put on that play and their witches and stabbings and suicides and Joe is cross dressing and playing a love interest to a woman. <laughs> that was the specific point of contention with the Christian Union, but. This reads incredibly pious today, but Alcott's own religious beliefs were a bit more nuanced. Mm -hmm. And I think this represents both kind of a trying to reckon with the death of her actual sister several years now after she'd passed, and also trying to write something. If you think about when this book came out, trying to write something for children who had lost loved ones during the Civil War and would still be grieving and would maybe need some guidance of their own to get through that which is why maybe there's this sentimental gloss or why it leans so heavily on when beth dies spring sunshine streamed in like a benediction mm. over the placid face upon the pillow she is a saint in death right and i think we're looking at the specific context in which in which this came out i think especially because alcott was an abolitionist and she was writing this for the children of union soldiers an understanding that death was actually for something Mm. and that their parents didn't, their parents, their loved ones who died in the war, they didn't die in vain. That may be a bit of a reach, but I'm just thinking about the
1: time that this, I think there's something to that. And I think the context of the civil war is a hugely Mm -hmm. significant one. Yeah. You asked me earlier if I knew much about her her (sighs) personal life. I I don't, except for I found this book in my library, Hospital Sketches.
0: Yes. Yes. So
1: this <laughs> her was, breakout. This was sort of mm-hmm. sort of my way in mm-hmm. to the topic, and I was reading through a few passages f- from that text, and one of the things I found was that she. How can I put this? So, Olcott's time working as a she was a nurse, right?
0: Yes, yes, she enlisted. Yeah,
1: she enlisted as a nurse, and she's working in a hospital, helping those who have fallen in battle, and. You can argue. We could argue that part of the reason she Mm casts Beth in this slightly brave soldier type mould is because of what she's noticing. You know, the soldiers Mm -hmm. being brought in from the battlefield. And interestingly, in in this chapter, chapter forty, there's a bit where there is a description of Beth sitting as the tranquil saint, arguably Buddhist type. You know, (laughs) with a kind of transcendental calmness. But interestingly, she says. Nothing could change the sweet, unselfish nature. And even while preparing to leave life, she tried to make it happier for those who should remain behind. The feeble fingers were never idle. Now, the assumption I I thought in that particular passage is that idleness Mm -hmm. was a bad thing, right? And that clearly, to me, that for Alcott, idleness is a character trait best to be Mm -hmm. quashed.
0: Yeah. This is throughout the book. They always have to be working and they have to be doing their chores. Right.
1: Okay. So there's a sort of, and you can kind of see how that fits with ideas of meritocracy. Mm -hmm. You know, I can, you can see how that might fit, but in her hospital sketches book, Olcott recalls a list of provisions she gave to a, a young gentleman, an orderly who was working in the hospital with her. And she describes by way of revenge, I, I think, this boy who loitered and lounged in a manner which proved his education mm-hmm. to have been sadly neglected. And like, she writes that this lazy boy had drifted from the dictates of a poem that he must have read as a child, right? And this poem that she's referring to is a poem about a busy bee. And I looked up, Okay, have you, maybe you've heard of this, I looked up this poem and it's called no. Against Idleness and it's by mm-hmm. Isaac Watts and apparently olcott <laughs> used to read this poem when she was when she I, I don't know if it's when she was young herself or when she was working in the i'm hospital. sure yeah and so it seems there that for olcott in her sense of a value system being busy being a busy bee being against I- yeah. idleness even on your deathbed is to be avoided yeah and so <laughs> i guess i use that as a as a way to underline the point you made that the civil war <laughs> and her role in it is, whole, is hugely significant for the way that she thinks about these pivotal, yeah. dramatic moments like the one that we encounter with Beth.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I And I think it's so... The dichotomy between good equals working hard and bad equals being lazy, or even here, no longer being able to work or make nice things for the little school children outside. thats a Just not being able to work is a sign of best decline. Mm. And I know that you've done a ton of, a lot of your work focuses on the link between disability and employment. And you did a great paper last year at the David Foster Wallace Conference about how Wallace portrays people who are seeking disability leave. Mm. (laughs) And it's interesting here that it's not that Obviously, Alcott doesn't cast Beth putting down her sewing needle as a bad thing, but it's it's not immoral And best part, but it's like, oh my God, now it's really bad for her. <laughs> this is a turn for the worse, is that she can't sew anymore. And I, I'm actually, it's, I can't believe we're this far into it, and I haven't mentioned this, but obviously, by this point, so the real life of Elizabeth Alcott died in 1858. Alcott went and served in the Civil War in the early 1860s and contracted typhoid fever in the hospital, which they treated her for with mercury. (laughs) And that went about as well as you can imagine. And she became very ill, not only as she was recovering from the fever, but after she'd recovered, she was weakened by mercury poisoning. So by this point, by 1868 or 1869, when she's writing this book, she has also, she's been on that deathbed as well. She's had several years at this point of experience of disability. And it's interesting, I think, (laughs) we might even be able to read I certainly, in in Alcott's journals, especially in her later years, she is very, very hard on herself when she can't work, when she can't get something done. There are times when she's losing her vision and she talks about how she can't write for more than 20 minutes without getting a headache. She has to write really big. She's very, very hard on herself about producing and being active. And so it's interesting that here the relationship between work and sickness. <laughs> you know, she doesn't say, Beth, that lazy bones put down her sewing needle and wouldn't work anymore. How bad. But that's a turn for the worse yeah, yeah. is when Beth can't participate in the household economy anymore. That's right.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And the, yeah. and you know what? That you're, you're so right about her being hard on herself mm-hmm. because again, coming back to the hospital sketches, which I think, I don't know if I'd call it a diary, but it's certainly, when I was reading it, it seemed sort of episodes that she was doing for her own Well-being, it Mm -hmm. seemed. Yeah, But in that, Olcott, when she's recounting working in the hospital, she says that wounded soldiers were coming back from Fredericksburg, which apparently was one of the big battles of the Civil War. Yes. And she describes how, what is it? I've got it here. The sight of several stretchers, each with its legless, armless, and desperately wounded occupant entering Mm -hmm. my ward, admonished me that I was there to work, not to wonder or weep, so, I corked mm-hmm. up my feelings and returned to the path of duty, yeah. which was rather a hard road to travel just then. So, in that, we've got quite a clear thought process for her, which is that mm-hmm. as well as the value of duty, which Olcott clearly holds in such high regard, we also see here mm-hmm. that she sees her professional role as a nurse demanding a suppression of her own emotions and that yes yeah and that we we get this sense that she's there to graft that she's not there to weep which i don't know maybe it's regarded as a sort of that's not a nurse's place to cry that to graft to, to labor to be employed in that task means that you cannot show emotion and that those two things are irreconcilable
0: yeah That recurs in the book where everyone is trying to bear it bravely for Beth's sake and create this happy environment around her. It comes back when in the journal, again, when I'm quoting again, we tried to bear it bravely for her sake. Later on, again, this is after Alcott considers suicide. She says, it seems so cowardly to run away before the battle was over. I couldn't do it. I went home resolved to take fate by the throat and shake a living out of her. So again, she's like, get a grip, go back to work. That's the Alcott playbook here. What I will say for this chapter, though, is that when Beth sees the poem and wants to... First of all, Joe writes the poem. Joe writes about how she's feeling. And then when Beth sees the poem, Joe doesn't squish it down or pretend that she's okay. She and Beth have kind of a intense, challenging conversation about their own grief and their relationship to one another. So it's not quite that Beth has to smash down her feelings to be acceptable in this moment. There are many points in the in throughout the book where joe doesn't want people to see her crying because she thinks that crying is unmanly oh. <laughs> but here i think we're nearly a decade out from the actual death of elizabeth alcott when alcott is writing this chapter we're several years we're a few years after the end of the civil war alcott has injured typhoid fever and been disabled for several years now and i think what we are getting here is i think some of that sentimentality we 're knocking earlier might just be more openness about feelings <laughs>
1: mm, I think that 's interesting yeah yeah well in, in in the same way the the line between telling people how you feel and oversharing or <laughs> sentimentality and mawkishness, these lines yes. are very, very <laughs> changeable and, and elastic mm-hmm. as they should be, and now that you 've kind of drawn attention to this final section when mm-hmm. the poem's being read, and in fact, the poem contains the line uh, in the third stanza where it says, (laughs) give me for I need it sorely of that courage wise and sweet, which has made the path of duty green beneath your willing feet. The path of duty is is the line that comes from the hospital sketches passage that I I recounted. Mm -hmm. But after that, when they're having this conversation and this is sort of, I think this is the moment when Beth is at her most verbal, right? She's giving her farewell address, right? And, It's about laying out what she expects Uh Joe to take on, you know, pick up the burden of of duty and of hard work and everything else. And I'm conflicted about this passage because, yeah, where Beth says, "You must take my place, Joe, and be everything to father and mother when I'm gone." Yeah, right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, they will turn to you. Don't fail them. I mean, yeah. I think that's a quite astounding thing for a a deathbed scene to leave the the protagonist with, Mm -hmm. I suppose. And the fact that not only does Mm -hmm. Beth say that, but then Joe, her outlook changes and she says, Mm -hmm. I'll try Beth. And then, and there and then Joe renounced her old ambition, pledged herself to a new and better one, acknowledging the poverty of other desires and feeling the blessed solace of a belief in the immortality of love. Now, I guess this is an open question, but, Do you think Joe is correct to give up her ambitions?
0: Well, yeah, because the tail end of kind of Beth's request to Joe is be everything to father and mother. You'll be happier in doing that than writing splendid books or seeing all the world. So those and those are Joe's ambitions is to travel a lot, see the world and write splendid books. But the understanding here is that with Beth gone, we understand Meg is now married. Amy is off in Europe and they know at this point that she is thinking about getting engaged to Fred Vaughn, later Laurie, but we'll see. So at this point, Beth is saying, I'm going to go and you're going to be the only one left to look after father and mother. And you have to do it and you have to give up your desire to write books and see the world and you have to do it out of love. So that is also something that again, Alcott struggled with in her own life. It was normal at this point for in families with several daughters. There was a daughter who just wouldn't get married and who would stay at home and kind of be the home care for the elderly parents. That was... It wasn't unusual. But the thing is, Alcott had such ambition and Joe has such ambition that it's painful to be faced with that prospect. Because even as Beth is dying, it's like, what about me? Because I know what this means for me is that there's kind of one less pair of hands here to help out. A lot of work has to fall to me as my parents are aging. And in Alcott's Real life, what she, how she kind of reconciled this was working herself to the bone, even when she was sick and not feeling strong. (laughs) And she died very, very young because she exerted herself so much and would push herself to write and make money and go out and (laughs) do speaking engagements. She did get to travel. She did get to see a lot of the world, but not as much as she wanted to. And I think, in in a very serious way, the structure of the family at this point and the burden that was placed on Alcott's shoulders. To be everything to father and mother, who knows how many other books by Louisa May Alcott we would have gotten if that hadn't been the case and it hadn't completely fallen on her. I think you're right,
1: that, and yeah. you know what? There's a. It's funny we can indulge in speculation about what a parallel universe in which Alcott writes yeah. these books, in which Joe then you know mm-hmm. also pens half a dozen more. Yeah. And I think we can actually find points in this chapter where we can see an entire novel that comes out of a slightly different phrased bit. So I I had one in mind, which was at the beginning of the chapter where there's simply a description of the first bitterness was over. The family accepted the inevitable Mm -hmm. and tried to bear it cheerfully, helping one another Mm -hmm. by the increased affection which comes to bind households Tenderly together in times of trouble They put away their grief And each did his or her part Toward making (laughs) that last year a happy one The phrase, they put away their grief It's like, (laughs) okay, I'll just right. Okay, guys, the grief is gone Let's get on with, you know There's an entire novel that you could get out of Oh, I'm sure Out of not sequestering away This cognitively (laughs) complicated emotion of grief (sighs) Yeah And likewise, I think At the end as well the swift way in which joe yields her ambitions her d- her desires to go traveling or to write books i think it also seems to that's also speaks to the possibility of of a slightly two-dimensional do i mean that it's complicated stuff
0: it is if i may i just i want to springboard off something you said yeah if you don't mind. No, please. And I don't want to keep you here too much longer. No, no, I, <laughs> we, honest, we are
1: going deep. No, like, yeah. This is great. I'm, I'm having yeah. such a good time because you're, you're helping yeah. me to understand it's, what some things that yeah. I intuited and then other things yeah. that I completely hadn't considered. So this is great.
0: Yeah. If we really think about it, Beth is dying and she's saying you have to work and you have to be at home and you have to look after mother and father. There's an extent to which it's not about emotionality and putting away grief isn't just Victorian manners. We have to keep in mind that this was an age without social security. For as much as Alcott was limited by gender, I think more so she was limited by class. And in this case, it was, there was no social security for her parents. Her father They had grown up in desperate poverty. She was the family's only breadwinner. It was completely on her to provide a comfortable old age for her parents and a comfortable home for everyone she loved. There are places in her journal where she's saying, I'm feeling really, really sick, but my sister's husband just died, so I'm going to have to turn out another book to make sure that the boys have enough to live on. What we're looking at here is also, you <laughs> know, if we zoom way out, we've been in Beth's, death, in, in Beth's sick room, let's zoom way out to the United States of America in the Victorian era. And any kind of relief for disabled people, for elderly people, for sick people was either slim to non-existent. And I think that is why the emphasis on work, which we've been very tough on, here it was a matter of life or death or a matter of poverty or a little bit of comfort in your old age. Mm. And so the comfort and the happiness that they're able to give Beth were understood to see that, I think, as a function of their own hard work and putting their own pursuits aside out of necessity, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's a really important historical point to emphasize the lack of a welfare state, essentially. Mm -hmm. And funnily enough, I I remember now that there is a bit early on and that is just, again, another half a sentence in which we might ask, how do they afford this time that they have to to help Beth in Mm -hmm. her final year? And it's because John Mm -hmm. quietly set apart a little sum that he might enjoy the pleasure of keeping the invalid Supplied with the fruit she loved and longed for. So mm-hmm. again, you're, you're right that philanthropy was a, a familial matter. There was no sense that yeah. the state was obligated to help disabled people. And, um, yeah. arguably a lot of that is repeating itself now in the UK with certain kinds of austerity cuts that have been 13 years in the making. But that aside, Mm -hmm. I was actually going to, I was Mm -hmm. going to highlight this use of the word (laughs) invalid. (laughs) Well, no, because you know, there's the obvious thing that we can say, which is this is, you know, it's a term of its time, right? That's the sort of obvious Mm -hmm. thing to look at. But I think what's more interesting if we think about the kind of craft that Olcott, her her craft, right. You know, the way that she is assembling the narrative structure that will eventually lead to Beth shuffling off the mortal coil is that this word invalid, I used a very helpful control F function on my laptop and located every (laughs) single time the word disability is used in the text and it's never, Mm. and it's never used, but the word invalid is used a lot. And in almost every single chapter and in almost every single time that the word invalid is mentioned, Beth's name is very close by often in the same sentence and it's that's i don't mean that it's not that she is always (laughs) being described as the invalid or as an invalid (laughs) but rather that the word invalid is augmenting a sentence that also has her name in it so there's a there are a couple of examples i (laughs) i could think of so there's one yeah please there's one in chapter four where olcott describes a doll that had belonged to joe (laughs) And it having had a tempestuous life was left a wreck <laughs> in the rag bag from which dreary poorhouse. There's the Victorian there. It was rescued yes. by Beth and taken to her refuge. Having no top to its head, she tied on a little neat cap. And as both arms and legs were gone, she hid these deficiencies by folding it in a blanket and devoting her best bed to this chronic invalid. So that's one example where we yeah. have Beth, you know, taking on the role mm. of the caregiver right yeah. or even you could argue the surgeon mm-hmm. attaching prosthesis to yeah. the doll yeah. which you know if we think of now we think of Olcott's time working in the hospital mm-hmm. sort of makes sense yeah and then there's another one later on in chapter 24 where this is the chapter where Beth becomes ill for the first time I get the impression it's also where someone else does Joe get ill as well do they both get ill together
0: so at this point, basically, father is ill in the Civil War. So Marmee has to hurry off to look after him, and while she's away, Beth gets scarlet fever. And so, essentially, these two family members are very sick at the same time, just in different places. I see.
1: Okay. Well, well, in in that chapter, Jo is described as devoting herself to literature and Beth. So the two <laughs> most important things that culminate in our in the yeah. chapter we're looking at, and. Beth is described as remaining delicate long after the scarlet fever was a thing of the past, not an invalid exactly, but never again the rosy healthy Mm -hmm. creature she had been. Yeah, And so not an invalid exactly, which is what she later becomes, you know, the word invalid is the only description in chapter 40 of what is Beth as Alcott describes an invalid. I think also maybe a patient, but I also then noticed Mm -hmm. that, after chapter 40, the word invalid never appears again. So after yeah. after her yeah. death, there's no more invalidism referred to in the novel, mm-hmm. which seems to me to confirm that throughout Olcott, even when she's talking about, you know, a doll that is in that is an invalid doll, yeah. She sort of has Beth in mind to tie this theme of disability and illness together.
0: Oh, completely. Yeah. that's. I'm so glad you did that. You came with the receipts. You said, I am Sherlock Holmes. I'm going to find every mention of invalid. So that was really, and it's. it also points to something interesting about the way they would have viewed disability at the time, which was Beth was not quite an invalid yet. Even though she has survived this illness and been weakened by it, she's not an invalid. She wouldn't be described as disabled. And that makes me think of kind of present day discourses of invisible disabilities and what is disabled enough, quote unquote. And it's so funny that Beth throughout the book is so interwoven with these images of sickness and death and invalidism. But we're still, even when she's well, she can't have that label. They're sort of surreptitiously applying the label to her. It's very, inter- it's very interesting. I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah. I, <laughs> poor Beth.
1: That's <laughs> all I can. Yeah. That's it. This is the sort of irreconcilability of Or the the impossibility of non-normative embodiment in literature, which is that there is simultaneously an acknowledgement of its otherness, of its non-normativity, while at the same time a continuous referral to the ways in which, even if it temporarily was non-disabled, it's noteworthy in its non-disabledness. Exactly. Um, Exactly. And, you know, and this is, yeah. And and as far as, you know, the questions of visible and invisible disabilities, I mean, this is an ongoing issue and there's a wonderful book by Alice Wong. Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, yes. You've heard
1: of this, book. she's a wonderful activist though. uh, Yeah. And disability visibility edited by Alice Mm -hmm. Wong. And there's some really wonderful bits in that where she tackles this, well, not just Alice, but other writers and activists and, political figures tackle the thorny issue of what is disabled enough you know yeah and actually judith human you know you mentioned the disability rights movement that your friend's father written about well judith human you know she has a wonderful line about you know the idea that we are all of us disabled but temporarily Mm -hmm. non-disabled
0: exactly and there's something
1: (laughs) delightfully democratic about that i think
0: there is yeah i i think another this is again from the same book but you know disability is the only minority group that anyone can join at any point mm. right and even as joe even as alcott is describing beth as the invalid we're looking at joe who's really displaying a lot of symptoms that we might think of as neurodivergent or autistic we also this is a <laughs> total aside, but the real life Anna Alcott, who was the real life Meg, she had hearing loss and used a, an ear trumpet, like a preliminary, an early hearing aid. And there are parts in the book where people are being very loud, or there are crowd noises, and Meg is portrayed as being overwhelmed and frustrated. And my friend Eliana Dobres, who's an audiologist who's hard of hearing, was like, "I in that, I really see Meg as a disabled character being overwhelmed, because hearing and comprehending auditory information is so much more challenging for her than it is for anybody else. So Beth is the invalid, but, you know, the other March sisters, they're on this spectrum as well. The father is sick and has an illness and comes home and is quiet and, you know, kind of detached from the household, but he's not described as an invalid. He's the priest who's helping Beth. So I think taking a more expansive view, we can kind of see the ways that disability is a- is affecting everyone in this family.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. even the nomenclatures that are that are dished out mm-hmm. in the novel. I mean, if we broaden it enough yeah. to consider different kinds of aging and the condition yeah. of, of being elderly as a kind of stepping onto the continent, the vast yeah. continent of disability. We could consider <laughs> old Hannah as, you know, yeah. Yeah. somebody who is compelled, as you pointed mm-hmm. out through necessity, to work, to graft, mm-hmm. to labour. Beyond a point where their body yeah. really should be doing it. Yeah, it's funny yeah. that you mentioned hearing, and because basically, I think this leads to an interesting question about what constitutes a disability, and there, and and on top of yeah. that, the way in which we formulate what is a disability, what is a gift, what is an affliction, mm-hmm. and what is a punishment. Because mm-hmm. there's a bit where in one of those, uh, in one of the paragraphs where. Alcott is describing, you know, the preparations that the family are getting on with for this final year of Beth's life, and it's the pleasantest room of mm-hmm. the house was set apart for Beth, and in it was gathered yeah. everything that she most loved—flowers, pictures, her mm-hmm. piano, the little work table, and the beloved pussies. Her father's best books were mm-hmm. found their way there, etc., etc., and. I mean, that that's a household that is sort of in the midst of its busyness, you know, and it's a sort of, you can see yeah, why she's chosen yeah. to begin the chapter with this kind of d- domestic mm-hmm. activity and light, because it kind of yeah. helps yeah. to frame the dark and the, the slowness yeah. and the stillness of the later parts. But the fact that the piano is what is referred to here, in the first chapter, in playing pilgrims, we get to mm-hmm. see... I think it's one of the earliest references to one of Beth's unique characteristics because as a two-dimensional disabled character, saintly character, Mm -hmm. Beth is given very few attributes, right? Because the saint-like figure doesn't contain attributes so much as Mm -hmm. dishes out virtuous aphorisms. You know, that's the kind Mm -hmm. of role of the saintly figure. Exactly. But she does play the piano. And in the first chapter, playing pilgrims... There's a passage in which Alcott describes that no one but Beth could get much out of could get much music out of the old piano, But she always yeah. had a way of softly touching the yellow keys and making a pleasant accompaniment mm-hmm. to the simple songs that the family sang and The reason why i meant, I, I mentioned mm-hmm. this passage in relation to you just referring to hearing loss and being hard of hearing is that mm-hmm. there's a wonderful book by a disability scholar called Michael Davidson. The book's called Concerto for the Left Hand and Michael Davidson is a hard of hearing disability scholar. And in this book, the title of which is borrowed from Paul Wittgenstein, so Ludwig's brother, who lost his arm, I think, in the Second World War. And Davidson discusses how a one-handed piano player such as Wittgenstein can create a piece of music which is profound and moving, not in spite of the fact that it only uses one hand, but because the yes, one, of its yeah. use of only one hand. And the one-handed <laughs> concerto challenges the assumptions, this is what Davidson says, of what the disabled body can create. And yeah. I would argue in relation to <laughs> Beth, it asks <laughs> us to consider what is a gift and what is an affliction.
0: Yeah, you're so right. Beth is, it's again that double-edged sort of disability representation. Is it tokenizing that Beth is a saint who is perfect at playing the piano or is it something that we can look at as, you know, the fact that Beth, even at the beginning of the novel, even before she contracts Scarlet Fever, she's, Incredibly shy, so shy that she doesn't go to school, but probably that time alone at home with the piano has made her really adept and skilled at it. So I, <laughs> we can kind of look at it from both mm. sides. Saul, I want to thank you for coming here today. I knew that this chapter was going to be a challenge and I'm so glad that you were here to sort of think through all of it with us. Usually we have way more fun here, <laughs> but you have brought so much rigor to this conversation. I'm, I'm very glad that you were able to stop by here. Where can people find you online? How can they support your work? Let's get to that. Yeah, Yeah. we
1: should get to that, shouldn't we? Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful and such a joy and a very generative discussion to have about a very Mm -hmm. complicated and rigorous topic. Mm -hmm. As far as where I can be found, I guess the best place to find me at the moment while the social media platform remains is Twitter, (laughs) formerly Twitter, is at post post underscore it's at post post it's Mm -hmm. that's where i can be found but i think in due course there might be some other places to to find me i don't know i'm yet to branch out into the world of social media platforming maybe you can give me some advice
0: well, I, there's quite a – the the DFW Society is well represented on Instagram if you want to come and join us there, so I will say that. That's not for the general audience. That's, That's for <laughs> us. <laughs> just for us. Before I kind of sign out, I will – just because we've been talking about kind of some heavy stuff here, I want to give a couple recommendations. One is Bethany C. Morrow's book So Many Beginnings, which I love. You can see in our cover art incorporates a couple of characters – From different kind of adaptations of Little Women. And one is the Joe from Bethany C. Morrow's adaptation of Little Women, which is so many beginnings. And in that book, that's another book where Beth doesn't die. But what Bethany does is do a really interesting chronic illness plotline with Beth that is clearly informed by real life experience discussions with disabled people, understanding of chronic illness. And it's much more about Beth coming to reckon with her chronic illness and live with it and use it to her in her creative practice, even. And so I I really love that book. And I think if you are looking for something, a different take on Beth, I would really recommend that. And Anne Boyd Rue, who is a previous guest on the podcast, has a book called Meg Joe, Beth Amy, which is just about little women. So obviously, if you're listening to this, you're going to love that one. But she also goes quite deep into Beth and the Beth as the angel in the house, Beth is disabled, thinking about what this mysterious ailment of Beth's might be. So would definitely recommend those two books. And as always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever you buy So Many Beginnings and Meg, Joe, Beth, Amy. You can also now find us on Instagram. We are at Joe's Boys Pod. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks when we will have the author and journalist D.L. Mayfield here to talk about Beth's whole journey from an ex-evangelical standpoint. So bring your Kleenex. <laughs> it's going to be another cheer jerker. <laughs> Thank you so much,
1: Saul. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much, Peyton. Cheers. Cheers.